Well, before we begin our time in God's Word today, I want to put a PG-13 warning on today's sermon. Uh, We're going to be dealing with some uh, difficult topics, and it may create some conversations, parents, with younger children. They're certainly welcome to be here. I just want you to know that as we move into the time of message. You know, there are passages in the Bible you just can't wait to preach, and then there are others that you want to skip over. Uh, What we're going to be looking at today in Luke chapter 16 and verse 18 is one of those I'd like to skip over. Uh, Michael did that a few weeks ago. (laughs) As he was uh, preaching through Luke 16, 14 through 31, or preparing to, he came into my office uh, at the beginning of the week and he said, there's this verse right here in the middle of it on divorce. And he said, I don't know why it's there. And he said, you know, I think this is a senior pastor's passage. (laughs) He said, our people want to hear from you on this. Now, you might remember a few weeks ago, I said all those nice things about Michael being a great teacher. (laughs) And he still is. Uh, (laughs) I think Michael would have done a great job on this. uh, But because he passed the baton, or should I say the hot potato to me, uh, I'd like you to look with me now at Luke 16, 18. In Luke 16, 18, it says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, you've heard me say before that truth can be like ice, crystal clear and just as cold. As we look at this, I want you to know this isn't a cold and distant God who is just speaking cold facts. God hates divorce. You read Malachi 2.16, it says that, For I hate divorce, says the Lord. It's important to understand he doesn't say, I hate those who are divorced. He says, I hate divorce. I hate what it does. I hate that it breaks the covenant relationship of a husband and wife. I hate the hurt that it does in a home as it hurts the husband, the wife. I hate that it hurts children. Two out of every five children in our day and age are products of a divorced home. I'm one of them. I'm part of that statistic. My parents divorced when I was 17. You've heard me share before that my dad was a wife and child abuser, very severe physical abuse. He also had multiple affairs on my mom. Uh, I was kicked out of the house at the age of 16 because I was protecting my mom and my brothers from the abuse. I had physical fistfights with my dad. Of the five brothers and sisters that I have, two of my brothers are divorced twice each. My youngest sister is divorced twice from the same man. He committed affairs on her. He moved out to marry his girlfriend. That fell through. He moved back home. They remarried, and he did it all over again, and she divorced the second time from him. So as I talk about divorce today, it's painful. It's personal. It's not just painful and personal for me. It's personal to everyone in this room. I don't think there is a single person here who has not been touched by divorce, either directly or through a family member, a friend, a loved one. So as we look at this today, I want you to know I'm not approaching this glibly. I'm not approaching this legalistically. But because God has put it in the Bible, we need to see what he says. And as we see what he says, you remember you always look at the context surrounding it. And, and in Luke 16, 18, I want to remind you of the context. As we were going through that part of the passage, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to die. He was going to give his life on a cross in Jerusalem. 
And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, you'll remember, hated Jesus. They didn't like what he was teaching. They didn't like that the crowds were following him. And they were always looking for ways to trap him. And as he was talking in that part of the, the passage, he had been talking about how he's the fulfillment of the law. And that the law was not done away with. If you look at Luke 16, 15, and 16, Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. He says the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. John that is mentioned there is John the Baptist. Do you remember why John the Baptist was arrested? It's because as he was out in the wilderness, as he was preaching, calling people to repentance, one of the things he highlighted was the, the, the abuse of the law by the ruler in power, a guy named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had divorced his wife, and he had married his niece, who was the, the, wife, the previous wife of his brother Philip. And John the Baptist is out there publicly saying, this is unlawful. So Herod has him arrested, taken out, stuck in a prison cell, He's there, he's imprisoned, uh, the, the niece that he married, uh, you know, the daughter dances, all these things happen, they take his head off. He's killed because he's talking about the abuses of divorce. And so as Jesus mentions John, that may be what prompted him to highlight this particular abuse of God's law. Now, he talks about divorce in a number of passages. And as I put these slides up here today, I know some of you take pictures, and you're more than welcome to do that, but the slides of the sermons are always on our website. If you go to waysidechapel.org, when you find the sermon there, you'll also see the, the slides are uploaded. So everything that's on the screen, you can download off the website, if that helps you not feel like you have to write fervently today. But in these passages, Jesus talks about divorce. These are from the Gospels, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. Again, in Matthew chapter 19, which you can begin to turn to in your Bible because we're going to be camping out there in Matthew 19, 3 through 12 in a moment. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and our passage here in Luke 16, 18. And as Jesus is talking about these things, what we'll find uh, when we get there to Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, is we find the same thing in Mark 10, 2. And it says some Pharisees came to him testing him. Now, you remember when the Pharisees would test Jesus, it's because they wanted to trick him. They trap him, catch him doing something wrong. So maybe they could get him arrested or, or dealt with in a different way. And I just mentioned that, that John had been arrested and beheaded for talking about divorce. And so this can be a catalyst where they're saying this can be a way to get rid of Jesus. It would have also divided the crowd. Because people who were following him were, were in one of two schools at that time. When Jesus says, is it lawful to divorce? Is it lawful to divorce? There were two main schools of thought. One followed a, a liberal rabbi by the name of Hillel. And he said that uh, divorce was pretty much allowed for just about any reason. If your wife burned the eggs, you could get rid of her. It was, it was almost that extreme. It was allowed for just about anything. And then there was a conservative rabbi by the name of Shema, and he said that, no, uh, you, you have a very narrow set of biblical reasons for divorce, and we're going to be walking through those things. It's what theologians call the exception clause. So when they say to him, is it lawful to divorce? They wanted to, to trap Jesus. Now, I want to remind you that the reason there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is because they were written to different audiences in that day. 
You had the Roman readers that Mark's gospel was for. You had the Greek and Gentile readers that Luke's gospel was written for. You had the Jewish audience that Matthew's gospel was written for. And because of that, we find things in Matthew's gospel that are not in the other ones because it didn't apply to the culture. And specifically, in the Jewish context, you had a period of betrothal that was seen at the level of marriage. Once you were betrothed to somebody, uh, everything but the consummation of the relationship had taken place. You were seen as legally married. It's why in Matthew 1.19, when Mary turns up pregnant during the time of betrothal, before Joseph and Mary have consummated their relationship, Joseph, it says, sought to divorce her that he wanted to put her away secretly. Remember, the law said that if somebody was an adulterer, they were to be stoned to death. And Joseph, being a righteous man and loving Mary, it says he sought to put her away quietly. The period of betrothal was to show faithfulness to see if somebody turned up pregnant. And when she did, Joseph said, well, you've been unfaithful. But then the angel appeared to Joseph and said, no, Mary is still a virgin. She's not been unfaithful. This is a miraculous conception through the Holy Spirit. And Joseph married her, kept her a virgin until her birth, until the birth of Jesus. And then uh, he had normal relations and other children were born to Mary and Joseph. So whether we're talking about Jews or Romans or Greeks or Gentiles, I want you to understand something. There is a foundational principle that applies to all. And it goes all the way back to the very beginning of creation where God made man and woman in the Garden of Eden. And where he performed the first marriage ceremony as he brought these two together. Uh, Mark chapter 10 talks about it. And what we're going to read today in Mark 19, 3 through 10 talks about it. Matthew's passage parallels Mark's but has additional information. That's why we're going to spend the bulk of our time here in Matthew. Matthew 19, 3 says some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, and you can underline that because that's the exception we're going to be talking about here in a moment, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And the disciple said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Now, as I told you, there were two camps. One said, you can divorce for anything. And there was another that said, there's very limited things. And they thought, okay, Jesus, which one are you going to choose? If you choose the liberal view, this part of the people are mad. If you choose the conservative view, this part of the people are mad at you. And Jesus surprises everybody. He says, I'm not going with either of those views. I'm going with God's prescribed design, which is that you should be married until death do you part. Now, that blew everybody away. It's why the disciples say there in verse 10, wow, well, you better really think hard before you get married because, gosh, you're connected till death. Jesus says, yeah, exactly. When Jesus says in Matthew 19, 5, for this reason, 
If you look at Genesis 2, 24, those are the words that begin there where, jo- where, where Adam, who had just been given Eve in the garden, as she had been taken from the rib in his side and created in the image of God, it says that he says, for this reason, she is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, for, for woman has been taken from man. He gets that at the core level, they are one. And what God says is when there is marriage, the two become one. But then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And sin entered the world. Satan, our enemy, and the enemy of God came in and he tempted the man and the woman. He, he, brings, he breaks the fellowship with God in heaven. He breaks the fellowship between the man and the woman. Satan from the very beginning has been attacking the home. He's been seeking to destroy this core design of God's. And so what happened is Jesus Christ had to come to the earth. God had to leave his throne in heaven. He had to take on flesh and blood. He had to walk among us so that he could ultimately go to Jerusalem and die on a cross to pay the penalty of death for our sins, to restore the broken relationship, and to deal with what had happened in the world because of sin. That's the answer as to why he was here, and that's the answer to what we read in verse 7 when the the disciples say, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Remember, Moses is the one that God used to give the law to the people. And in the law, God had said, you're not to divorce one another. But then he comes along in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and he says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, That's where the liberal camp says, well, just about anything applies. Because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. So at this point, what happens is husband A is married to wife B, and he divorces her and sends her away. Now... It continues and says, and if the latter husband turns against her, that's the new husband marrying the wife, if he turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce, this is a second divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, she becomes a widow, to the second husband, it says, then her first husband, husband A, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. Now, I'm emphasizing that because near the end of this message, we're going to talk about a point where we're talking about the marriage relationship having been broken. And what this clearly tells us is God sees the end of the relationship when there is a remarriage. So remember that for later. And it says, since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So this is the certificate of divorce passage. It comes along in Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy literally means the second giving of the law, Deutero to Nami law. And so what happened is the reason the people were divorcing was it was indiscriminate. In fact, one of the biggest reasons the Jewish men were divorcing their wives is they were coming into these, these places where there were these pagan women. They were young, they were exciting, they were different, and they were setting aside the wife of their youth and marrying these women. Malachi 2.14, the prophet Malachi talks about these abuses. He says, The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
And this is what leads to that famous verse that I quoted in the beginning, Malachi 2.16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So what's happening here is the certificate of divorce is being granted. But I want you to understand this. That is not God's design. Remember, his design is they are one from the beginning till death do you part. And what happens is, even when there is unfaithfulness in a relationship, the Bible does not dictate divorce take place even though it allows it. We'll talk more about this as we go through this. What it does is say there should be seeking of godly restoration, seeking to find healing to the hurts and bringing the two back together. What Deuteronomy 24 is doing is not dictating divorce. It's recognizing it's taking place. And what it does is it seeks to put protections in place for the vulnerable. Do you know who the vulnerable party was in the first century culture? Women. Women were not allowed to own property. They had no legal rights in court. And if a woman was put out and divorced, she's older at this point, She's got less options in terms of the culture of that day. People are marrying all these younger, exciting women. And she's left to be like you see in the book of Ruth, where they're left at the kindness of others, where they glean in the fields and they have to be supported by other people. And what God said is, you are putting a vulnerable person out and you're creating this system. And so God comes in out of love and he says, I'm going to put protections to limit when you're trying to do these things, to dictate how certain things happen. When God was preparing to bring his people into the promised land, he knew what was going to happen. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verses 3 through 4, he says this, You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will quickly destroy you. As you read the book of Ezra in chapters 9 and 10, you see how the people violated God's law. They did these things. They intermarried with the pagan people. The prophet Malachi later rebukes the Jews, as we just read, for these abuses. He says in Malachi 2.11, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel. And in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign god. And so what happens is God comes in and he says, put away these pagan wives. Come back to what I called you to, to be my people, not to be uh, playing the harlot with these these pagan gods around you. In Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, it's what we see happening in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verses 23 through 31 when Nehemiah comes into Jerusalem as he's restoring the city and the temple and, and, and he sees all this pagan intermarrying and he says, put these pagans out. And if we had a lot of time, we could go into the Hebrew and how it doesn't, there, there's a word in there that talks about more of a concubine common law versus a, a covenant marriage, but we don't need to, to go that far down into the weeds. So what's happening is the people are unfaithful, even the priest. And he's saying, what are you doing? You know the law. You should be upholding the law. And he has to purge the nation of the abuses. The people were being unfaithful to God. And even in the midst of that, God was faithful to them. And that's why I said earlier, God's design is always for reconciliation. He models it for us as well. Read Jeremiah chapter 3 
In Jeremiah chapter 3, he talks about the adultery of the nation uh, going off to the pagan gods, and yet he says, you will remain my people. Read the book of Hosea, where there is this picture of the unfaithful wife who prostitutes herself. And he says, you as Israel are, are that, and he calls them back. He says, I love you, I will redeem you, I will restore you. And so these are the backgrounds, even in cases of infidelity, where there is a biblical allowance for divorce. God doesn't prescribe divorce. Instead, he says, I call you to the standard, the highest standard of reconciliation and restoration. Now, there are passages in the Bible that give us additional information. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing, again, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. He says, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, Paul, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So here the scenario is, you have a Christian who marries an unbeliever. And the Bible is very clear, we're not to be unequally yoked. And so you're saying, well, then I should break this relationship. But he says, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. He says, you as a Christian are not to break the relationship, but if the unbelieving spouse divorces, you're allowed to let them leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage. The covenant is what's being talked about there in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, let me make sure you understand something here. God is not calling us to missionary dating. If you're saying, well, as a Christian, I'm going to date a non-believer to help them come to the Lord. First of all, dating can lead to marriage. And second of all, there's no guarantee the unbeliever will become a believer. So he's not calling us to missionary dating. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? When it says being bound, it's a word that literally means yoked. And I have a yoke here. This actually belonged to my wife's great, 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 you figure out how many to go back to the 1800s, grandfather. And this was a training yoke for small uh, animals before they were trying to teach them how to pull yokes. And the way a yoke works is you would put one animal on one side, another over here. You would attach the plow or a cart to this. And as they went down, as they pulled together, you would plow a straight furrow. Now I'm going to turn it upside down for ease of illustration here. So what he says is, as a Christian, if you're over here, do not be unequally yoked, married to a non-believer over here. Because the picture is that if you as a believer are over here and you're saying, you know, it's Sunday morning, we need to go to church. And the unbeliever, and sometimes it's the Christian who does this too, but so the, the non-believer over here says, no, I think we should sleep in. I think we should go to the lake. I think whatever. What you have is this picture of you dragging the other one up here to church, right? No, come on, we got to go, go, go. 
And it's not just that. I counsel couples all the time where I see the pain of this. They say, you know, our home is constantly fighting. My husband or wife is pulling this way. I'm pulling this way. I think we should raise the kids to know the Lord. No, we shouldn't. We should let them make their own decisions. We should. Do. And there's this fight that goes on in the home. And, and you don't get a straight furrow. You get this zigzag. You get this plow. And you get this person who's saying, I'm worn out. I'm always battling. And, and, and this is what the picture is. Again, God is not keeping something good from you, brothers or sisters. He's protecting you. Every time we look in the law, he's protecting us. When he tells us to keep the marriage bed undefiled, that means don't have sex until you're married. It's not because he's a prude. He invented sex. He gave it to us. He says in the Song of Solomon, eat, friends, drink, imbibe deeply, O lovers. He says, have all you want, but within the context that I designed it as a husband and a wife. Why? There's no unplanned pregnancies. You don't worry about sexually transmitted disease if the husband and wife have been monogamous their whole life. Uh, you don't bring STDs into the relationship. You don't worry about being used and thrown aside when some younger, exciting, pagan uh, woman comes along. You're not put out to pasture or the other side men. And so what happens is God says there are protections. When he says don't be unequally yoked, it's because he's saying, I know the pain. I know what will happen in your home when you do these things. And so that's why these things are in God's law. And, and when we read here, um, now let me mention something else of great importance here. And again, this is not just when there is a Christian married to a non-Christian. I want to talk about physical abuse for just a moment. I mentioned that I grew up in a home with physical abuse. It was horrific. Uh, I watched my dad break my mom's nose. I watched, uh, we had guns pulled. Uh, it's why I got kicked out at 16. It was only by the grace of God somebody was not killed. I had, I had weekly fistfights with my father. And I know people grow up in situations. Some of you sitting here today are the product of bad theology that you've heard where somebody says, well, uh, submission means that you're a doormat or a punching bag or you're supposed to just grin and bear it and bear up under it. Let me say this very clearly. If you are here today and you are in a relationship where there is physical or sexual abuse, God is not telling you to remain in that. I'm not telling you to divorce, so hear me clearly. I'm saying, first of all, the number one thing you do is you get safe. If you or a child or somebody is in a physically abusive, dangerous situation, you need to be safe. You get out of that, and then we can begin to deal with the abuser then we can begin to deal with the issues. The Bible tells us to obey civil authority. And civil authority says, when I was a cop, if I went to your home and there was physical abuse in a relationship, you arrested the person for domestic abuse. God doesn't say you put up with that. God doesn't say you allow somebody to be sexually abused. What God says is, you get safe. And then you move to reconciliation. You move to get help for the abuser to help them change, to become the person they need to be. And it's not just men who abuse women. Women abuse men. I saw lots of situations where guys got physically abused by women. And so if you're in a situation like that, I'm going to be here at the front of the service afterwards. I would love to talk to you. I want to help you take steps, help you get help, and help the person who's the abuser to get help. Again, the goal is always restoration. It's always reconciliation. 
But please don't listen to the bad theology that says you just put up with that, that it's part of God's plan. That is wrong. Now, we're talking about a lot of things today. I think you're starting to see why I wanted to skip this passage, right? And and I know it can seem like you're trying to drink out of a fire hydrant. So one of the things I've done is on our website, again, I told you all these slides are available on the website, and I put this as a PDF. This is a summary of what we're talking about today. And because I'm a visual learner, uh, I put stick figures up there so you can label husband A and B with your name and your wife's name and on and on if it helps you to figure out how this works. We already talked about Deuteronomy 24 that you see in the first one. If husband A puts away wife B and then B marries C, B cannot remarry A. Um, If you drop down to number four, this is what I want to talk about here. If A divorces his wife and marry D, so that's the second wife, A is committing adultery, unless his marriage bond with B, his first wife, had been broken by B's immoral conduct. Now, what does immoral conduct mean? You see, I've referenced Matthew 19.9 there. Well, here's Matthew 19.9 with the Greek words inserted. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, and you see the Greek word pornea there. You hear where we get our English word pornography? Except for immorality, pornea, and marries another woman, commits adultery, moiakia. Now, why doesn't he use the same word in both places? If adultery is a sexual union outside of a covenant of a husband and wife, why didn't he just say the same word twice? Well, let's talk about this word, pornea. I already told you that you can hear the roots of pornography, and the word literally means to sell as in offering one's body for a price. It was used of prostitution, on chastity, of fornication. Fornication is sex outside of a marriage covenant. It's used in Romans one twenty nine to speak of homosexuality. It's used in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to speak of incest. In short, pornea is sexual activity outside of God's created design. It is any sexual activity outside of God's created design. The same word is found in Matthew 5.32. There it says, But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for reasons of unchastity, that's pornea, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, our other Greek word, moikia, in those other two places. So in terms of pornea, what is it? I told you that Rabbi Hillel's camp said it could be anything. We could spend six or seven hours walking through what scenarios they say could be allowed. But I go with the more conservative view of what pornea is. And so this is what pornea is defined as being. A single act of adultery. That's where if you're married to somebody and your spouse went outside and had sexual relations with somebody who was not their husband or wife, then that's adultery. We talked about Joseph seeking to put away Mary during this period of betrothal, which was seen as a covenant uh, marriage at that point in Matthew 119. We talked about incest out of Corinthians, and here you see an example of Leviticus 18, 6 through 18, where there was marriage between relatives, and God said this has to be uh, taken away. And this last one, number D, continued promiscuity. What does that mean? Well, this is where there can be Uh, more room for interpretation. You remember that Jesus talked about uh, if a person lusts after a woman who's not his wife, he's committed adultery in his heart. And so in terms of looking at pornography, 
where people are lusting after somebody who's not their wife. And, and pornography is not just a male problem. Statistics say there's about 25% of women who are regular uh, users of pornography. So women can do this as well. The average age of exposure to pornography is 11 years old. 11 years old. So parents, if you think you don't need to have conversations with your kids about some of what we're talking about, um, sadly, that's the society in which we live. And so you may be sitting here saying, well, I have a spouse who is addicted to pornography. So do I have biblical grounds to divorce them under this immorality clause? Let me take you back to the original. Rather than split theological hairs and say, do I have the grounds or not? What is God's intent? That there would be help and healing and restoration. Now, please don't hear me say, just ignore it. If you're sitting here saying, well, yeah, see, that's what all those people say. Just bury your head in the sand, ignore it. I didn't say that. I just got through telling you if you're in a situation where there's physical abuse, you get safe, and then we deal with it, and we will come alongside you to help. And I'm saying the same thing about pornography addiction. It's not just, it's not just uh, non-Christians who deal with it. It's rampant here in our church. And it's why we're not burying our head in the sand as Christians and as leaders. We've recently hosted a conference on uh, dealing with the abuses of sexuality, authentic intimacy that we had here for the ladies. We have sexual recovery groups for men and women. If you're here and you're struggling with pornography, I want you to know there's help. If you're a man, I want you to talk to Stephen Lay. He's our men's pastor who was doing the uh, new member welcome who was up here before. If you're struggling with pornography, please get in contact with Stephen Lay as a man. I said it's not just a male problem. Women struggle with it as well. And if you're a lady, I want you to contact Brenda McCord. She's our women's director. We have sexual recovery groups to help walk alongside you. These are confidential groups that will help you to begin to deal with these problems. It is a real and damaging and hurtful situation. Society tells you what's the harm in looking at pornography. It'll just add a little spice to your relationship. If, if I were not standing up here preaching, I could give you graphic examples of how far pornography goes and what it does to you as a person because I have counseled countless couples, those who are incapable of having sexual relationships without having pornography open on the bed in order to do it because that's where it goes. So please don't believe the lie of society that it's fun and adds spice. It's destructive. It's addictive. It's against what God has designed for us. And again, there's hope and healing. If you say that you're somebody who's addicted to pornography, medical studies show that your, your brain is physically rewired now to need that. But the good news is through abstinence and dealing with it, you can rewire your brain and, and recover uh, from that past in a period of, of several months in order to get free of it. So we want to help you uh, if you're in one of those situations. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning going, goodness gracious, I, I don't have any of these problems, you know? Well, praise the Lord. And I mean that in all sincerity. Not everybody here is addicted to pornography. Not everybody here is in an abusive relationship. There are good marriages here. And let me make sure you understand this. A good marriage is not defined by an absence of problems. A good marriage is defined by how you deal with the problems. It's not that you don't have any problems. It's how you deal with them. 
And so part of what we want to do is just like coming alongside those who are struggling in these areas, we want to help you in your marriage to make a good one even better. And so there are a number of things that we are doing. One of those is a marriage enrichment study called Reengage. And uh, right now we're running this out at Water, uh, Watermark is who birthed this study. Uh, but we're running this out at Stone Oak on Wednesday nights. Right now there are 46 people involved in the Reengage study. They've been going for a few weeks. Uh, but Pastor Will Davis, our campus pastor there, has said they will, they will allow more couples to come in. And if you can't join it now, we're going to be doing it again down the road. So uh, re-engage is an opportunity for you as a husband and wife to come in and say, we want to have, uh, you know, ways to strengthen our marriage. If you're looking to deal with something a little more individualistically, we have something called Prepare and Enrich. We have several of our staff who have been trained in the use of these marriage tools and again, if you're interested in that, take the connection card in front of you or call the church office and say, I want to talk to uh, Stephen Lay or Brenda McCord about uh, prepare and enrich. In January 26, we will be having the Five Love Languages conference here. This is Dr. Gary Chapman. Many of you have read the book, The Five Love Languages. He's going to be here at Wayside Chapel. We're hosting a citywide seminar of the Five Love Languages. And I would encourage you to sign up online for that. If you have friends, coworkers, others, neighbors, and you're saying, you know, I've been looking for a way to invite them to something, uh, here's an opportunity. There's a cost involved in it, but you can, um, you know, help them come to it. This is a great way to strengthen your, your relationship with one another. The Five Lang Love Languages Conference with Dr. Gary Chapman. Now, as I said, a sign of a good marriage is not the absence of problems. It's how you deal with them. And when a couple comes to me and they say, look, Roger, we, our marriage is a mess. And they sit down in my office. What I'll tell them is I say, you've got three choices. The first one is the world says you can hit the ejection button. You can divorce. And you can walk away. I say, that's not an option. Biblically, I don't support that. If you're here to talk divorce, I'm not the guy. If you're here to find healing and hope in your marriage, I will walk with you through this process. And so that leads to the second conversation. What I say is, um, you're miserable, obviously. You wouldn't be sitting here in my office. Uh, I have couples that have been married 30, 40, even 50 years who show up in my office. And I say, <laughs> how long have you been miserable? Well, it's been decades. I say, why did you wait so long? And so as we talk through it, I say, why? Uh, I say, do you know what the definition of insanity is? And insanity has been defined as doing the same thing the same way and expecting different results. And so what I tell them is, obviously, something is broken. It's producing results that are making both of you miserable. And I applaud you for being here today to say, I want to deal with this. And I say, that leads us to the third option and where we need to spend our time, which is doing the work to fix your marriage. I said insanity is doing the same thing the same way and expecting different results. And I can use the illustration of a manufacturing line where a product is coming out and it shows up on the loading dock to ship and the product is defective. And what sometimes people try to do is cover the defect or slap a pretty label on it and they ship the product knowing it's broken. And I say what you do instead is you go back and you find the place in the manufacturing line where the, 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 the mistake is happening. And you tweak it and you fix it. Now, sometimes what that does, you fix that problem and that then reveals the next problem and the next problem and the next one. 
But as you continue to work on it, as you die to your selfishness, as you die to the destructive habits in your home, as you learn the principles to have the marriage you've always wanted and that God has always wanted you to have as well, in the end, you start shipping a better product. And I've seen marriages that ended in divorce that have reconciled and remarried. I've had the privilege of reofficiating at weddings of couples that divorced. It's one of the reasons that if you find yourself in a mess right now and you think you're headed to divorce, do as little damage to each other now so we don't have as much damage to undo later. Again, God's design is always reconciliation. God's hope is to bring about healing. Now, maybe you're listening to me right now and you're saying, well, Roger, this sermon is a little late because I'm already divorced. My marriage was a mess. I broke up, and it's not for any of the reasons that you put on the board. So I guess that means I'm in adultery because that's what God's word said. And in fact, I talk to people who tell me they've heard from others that they're living in perpetual adultery. Because as you look at verses like Matthew 5.32, Matthew 19.9, and Luke 16.18, when it says you commit adultery, it's in the present tense. The Greek form of the word is in a present tense, which means it's a continuous action. Now let me tell you something about Greek grammar. The present tense does not always indicate continuous action. Sometimes it simply means something occurred. Uh, If we haven't gone deep enough already, let me give you a grammar lesson here. There's something called the heuristic aspect, and that denotes a speaker's standpoint of the event from outside, so it's seen as a completed whole. There's also something called the particular present, and that describes an action that occurred in a moment of time. It's like if you have a pitcher who throws a ball, and that ball hits the bat, that is the moment in time. Now, the the ball travels, but... It's defining what happened at that singular moment in time. In other words, it's not a continuous event. There's also something called the nomic present. That's where a verb in the present tense is used to describe a general truth without reference to time. For example, if you look at the word divorces in Matthew 5.32, it's also in the present tense. Not just adultery, but divorces. But the act of divorce is not a continual action. Rather, it marks and is defined by the moment the decree is issued. You understand that? So don't make something walk on all fours. Beyond the grammatical comments, remember when we were looking at Deuteronomy 24, I told you to remember where God said that relationship was over when the new marriage occurred. And that's what's happening here. If adultery occurred, it was at the moment of the marriage, but after that, God says, this is the new covenant relationship, and this is not in effect anymore. So what do you do if you find yourself today in a place where you say, well, Roger, again, I feel like that applies to me? I want you to look at 1 John 1.9. Because 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. The Bible says there's one unforgivable sin that's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is defined by rejection of who Jesus is and what he did. The Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day said, you are not God's son, you are not the Messiah. You cast out and do miracles by the power of Satan. 
They attributed him not as God. They rejected him and said, you're doing the work of the devil. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you've rejected Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that is an unforgivable sin because on Judgment Day, you get to pay the penalty of death that he tried to pay for you. And I want you to hear clearly, divorce is not an unforgivable sin. It is painful. It is destructive at every level, in society, in your home, in your life. But I don't want you to carry that pain of the past. I mentioned my dad. And I'll tell you, I was mad at him. I carried anger around for years. I hated my father. He kicked me out of the house. He disowned me as his son. He said I was the reason the home disintegrated because I protected my mom and on and on. And, you know, I didn't want anything to do with my dad. But then I became a believer in Jesus. And when I became a Christian, I realized that I needed to do what God had done for me and forgive those who had hurt me. I wish I could tell you it happened like that. I fought God for years. And if you've tried to fight God, you know who ultimately wins, right? Let me just tell you, it's easier to go ahead now and uh, be led by the Spirit rather than to get the two-by-four upside your head like I had to have. And when I forgave my father, you know what I found out? All those years that I thought I had my dad in prison, I was the one. I was the one who got let out of the prison. So when I told my dad I forgave him, he said, I never did anything wrong to you. And, you know, my sin nature welled up at that moment again, and, but I didn't. I said, okay. I said, my forgiveness is mine to give. Whether you receive it or not doesn't matter. I'm giving it. And I found at that moment I was the one who walked out of prison. And I know some of you this morning are here and you're carrying immense hurt and immense hate because you've been wronged by somebody. Wronged by somebody who said they loved you. Wronged by somebody who said, I will be with you till death do you part. Wronged by somebody who did all kinds of things to you. And you're carrying hate. And I want to end by reading out of Ephesians 4.32. Because in Ephesians 4.32, we're told, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That word be that is found there in that passage is the Greek word genomai. And it literally means to become. To become. Before that, in Ephesians 4.13, Paul said, We have not yet attained to the full measure of what it means to look like Christ. So when he's telling us here to become like Christ, he says, here's the standard. And what he's telling the Ephesian believers in us today is one of the ways that we look more like Christ is we become kind. This word literally means to show a sweet and generous disposition. And kindness is not just what you say, but it's how you say it. Proverbs 15.1 tells us, A gentle word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We're told to be tender-hearted, compassionate, Now, the Greek word used here is very rare. It's only used two times in the whole New Testament. One is there in Ephesians 4.32, and the other is in 1 Peter 3.8 and 9. There we're told to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or an insult for an insult, but giving a blessing instead. Do you know what the very the verse right before it in 1 Peter 3, 7 is dealing with? 
husbands and wives. Husbands and wives in that relationship. Are there any husbands or wives listening today who need to show forgiveness to your spouse? Is there anybody here who's been divorced or hurt? Who needs to drop that weight of hate and hurt you've been carrying? This word that is used was a medical term. It actually described the, the healthy function of the intestines. Now, you know, that's a, a really pretty picture to leave you with, right? You know, on Valentine's Day, we get those cards with a pretty heart on it. How'd you like to get one that showed intestines on it, right? <laughs> but in the first century, that was the Greek thought. The heart was not the seat of emotions. It was here in your bowels, in your intestines. And, and it literally means to feel it in your gut, to feel it in your gut. Have you ever felt it in your gut when you're carrying hate and hurt? You've got that knotted up feeling. You've got that root of bitterness that's growing in you and it's poisoning everything. That's the picture here. And what God says, instead of carrying around that, that, that rock of hate in your gut, he says, get rid of malice and ill will. How? By exercising forgiveness. Paul says we're to forgive each other as we've been forgiven by God. That Greek word literally means to bestow favor unconditionally. I know you're sitting here listening to me going, no, they don't deserve it. They hurt me. They did this. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I want my pound of flesh. God says to to give that favor unconditionally. Isn't that what he did for us? It says, forgive as we've been forgiven. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He went to the cross. He gave his life to remove the brokenness of the world, to restore the relationship, including what divorce has done to us. I want us to go to God now in prayer. And we're going to close with a song. We're going to end with worship. I'm going to pray here in a moment. And after we pray and have the song, there are going to be prayer leaders at the front here. There will be pastors and elders and prayer leaders at the front. And some of you here may need somebody to talk to. And so I'll invite you to come up after the service, after we sing our closing song of worship. Uh, But will you join me now as we go to God in prayer? I want you to think about what we've talked about today and see if there's anything in your life you need to release and give to God now. Let's pray. Lord God, this has been a hard sermon. I know it stirs up a lot of emotions. I know there are people here who have been hurt, hurt deeply. You know the pain. That's why you hate divorce, God. You don't hate the divorcee, you hate divorce. And you came and you dealt with it by giving your life. You died on the cross to deal with this sin and all of our sins. And we thank you for that forgiveness that you've given to us. Father, as those who have been recipients of your unconditional, unmerited grace, would you help us to show that same grace and forgiveness to others? Not just for their sake, but our own as well, Lord. To remove that root of bitterness, that hurt, that hate that we're carrying. 
And so, Father, we ask that you would be at work, that you would help those who are hurt this morning. We pray for the homes that need healing, even today, for marriages that are, are not all they should be. If there are things we can help with, Lord, would you prompt them to come and talk to us? Would you help people to quit ignoring them? Father, we thank you that you love us and that you died for us and you're here to help us. So we ask for your help in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We stand.